Hey there, everybody. Happy New Year, and welcome back to another episode of Redeemed Through His Blood. Scott Durfee here, as always, joined by David Durfee. 2024, Scott. I know. Can you believe that? 2024. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. I guess it, it, my age starts coming out, which I've been a little bit resistant to over the last several months, but my age starts coming out because I think back and I think, why 2K? You remember Y2K? Yeah, yeah. And what yeah. a big deal that was supposed to be. Yeah, that was 24 years ago. I can't believe that. Y2K was huge, you know. We were getting all kinds of training. Yeah, I, I remember bet. L. Tom Perry, Elder Perry, was. he had that responsibility for the church, communication and technology and all of that. I remember all the emails that I got as an area director because they were afraid that all our computers and everything was going to go down and crash and... Anyway, I that was pretty intense. Yeah, that that was an intense. And that time. was twenty four years ago, Scott. I know, and it feels like it was just like last week. So sometime that's we should do something. We should do a podcast sometime, maybe on the second coming, and yeah, and you know, just uh, I mean, nobody knows, but there's signs that uh, have been fulfilled, and there's uh, only a few that haven't, and be fun to discuss all that because every year. We're, I know, closer to the Savior coming. I know many of you out there are praying for that. I, I pray for that from time to time, and and uh, and I, I know He's coming, and He'll come in a in a day, in an hour, when uh, people are about ready to give up on the idea of a second coming. Like the the pattern really is in the Book of Mormon, you know, Third Nephi, and. People are going to kill all the believers unless the sign is given, and that's the next. Uh, and you know, Nephi prays, and the Lord says, "Well, it's it's going to happen tomorrow." So, and and yet, prophets will tell us, I think, when it's going to happen, and not not today. I don't think they know the day or the hour, but I'll bet they know the year. I think uh, not necessarily now. But, like, again, the pattern, I think the pattern is in the Book of Mormon. And, and President Benson, in essence, used to teach this, that that really the pattern for our preparation uh, for the Second Coming is in the Book of Mormon when he appeared to the Nephites and Lamanites at Bountiful. If we would just study the Book of Mormon, we'll see the same things going on then that are going on now and we can recognize kind of the pattern. And uh, Samuel the Lamanite told him, you got five years. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if, I don't know if President Nelson or whoever may be the prophet five years out will will say, hey, y'all, you got five years. But uh, I I believe they'll know whether whether they feel impressed to publicly announce it or not. The the point is, I guess, is that uh, time moves on, and every year we get closer to the winding up of uh, all of the things here on this earth, and we all look forward to that. Giving patriarchal blessings, I, I feel that. I feel the, you know, the uh, Lord wanting to tell his youth, the rising generation, about the, their purpose, part of their purpose in this life was to prepare the earth and families for the second coming of Jesus Christ. So I I believe it's uh, 
probably closer than we think, but not as close as we want it to be. <laughs> there's, um, it, it seems to me at least, uh, there's a couple of different uh, ways to view this. You know, there's those that uh, obviously don't believe, and I guess there's some apathy attached to that, etc. And then there are those that, uh, you know, panic. Oh my gosh, I don't want that to happen. I'm not prepared. I'm not ready. You know, but which is the, out of ignorance, really. Then that's what mostly. I was just going to say. You know, when people come to understand the stuff that we teach here in the podcast, you know, about yeah. Christ's atonement, the effects of yeah. the fall, the effects of the atonement, and last week we uh, talked about his sinless life and how that is actually one of the uh, necessary events of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Well, today as we Again, move into those things. This is where, for me, David, the uh, the second coming of Jesus Christ becomes a welcomed event, something I yeah. look forward to with with great anticipation, uh, joyful anticipation. Because because when we understand, once I have come to understand that it's through His merit that I'm saved, where it's through his merit, through his righteousness, that my lack of those types of things um, really are, are brought to balance, really brought to justification through him. That's when the fear of those events that you were just talking about kind of dissipate for most of us. Yeah, it relieves a lot of stress and anxiety for sure. There's a lot of stress and anxiety about about the event we call the second coming, Scott. And I, I just think if people were more confident in Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice than they were in themselves. They would feel a lot less stress and pressure about the whole ordeal. Yeah. And if they understood that, hey, we're going to continue to live in houses and we're going to continue to have children and there's going to be people who marry and life is going to go on. I mean, some, some, of, the, uh, some of the changes will be dramatic, uh, but sociality will continue on as it is now and families will continue to to grow and there'll be mothers and fathers and new babies and grandmothers and grandfathers and celebrations and i I mean really scott it it's the earth will change some things will definitely change satan will be bound the wicked will be destroyed those those are all pretty dramatic events but we'll just continue to live the gospel as we're living it now, and life will pretty much go on as we know it now, minus the wickedness and evil and all of that. And some of the effects of the fall that we talked about. Yeah. Yeah. We'll actually go back into a terrestrial state. Right. Which is what Adam and Eve were in in the Garden of Eden, was a terrestrial state. And uh, and that, that'll be sweet. But again, we'll continue to... to uh, live life as much the way we know it. Uh, anyway, we should talk about that more some sometime. And as we begin a new year, too, Scott, I know that last year when we did a podcast, we did a podcast on intentionality, living life with, with the intentions, with changing our, being more intentional in how we live our life, uh, being more kind of purpose-driven, what's our purpose, and intentional in our in our use of time and in the choices and decisions we make and maybe maybe you know more of a plan if if God needed a plan how much more important is it for us to have a plan and the importance of planning and carrying out our our work and uh, participating in the work of salvation and exaltation 
I don't know. I we won't uh, do a special podcast on that this year, but you can, if you if you want to review that, you can go back and see. I think that was the first of. I think it was either the first or the second one last year of 2023. Yeah, yeah we did Jory and Mandy um, Norton, and that was a, I encourage you to also listen to that interview. My goodness, what a great year! To, great way to start the year with that too. But it's right around there. It's either right before or yeah. shortly after that one. I just the word intention is always kind of on my mind, and uh, being more intentional. President Nelson likes that uh, word. Has used that word a lot. We should pray with more intention. We should read the scriptures, be a little more intentional in in our uh, study of the scriptures. Maybe some something a little more systematic. Uh, anyway, just uh, how can we make the best use of our our time and our efforts in ultimately developing a closer relationship with our Savior and our Heavenly Father and having the Holy Ghost with us at all times. You talk about intentional. I got on the scales this morning. You got to get intentional. Yeah, I got to get intentional again. (laughs) (laughs) And I I say that to Deb. You know, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I tend to do most things addictively or alcoholically, you know. Obsessively. And that goes obsessively. That goes for everything. Uh, You know, one day Deb comes home and we have tons of scuba gear, for example, you know. I mean, that's just kind of the the life. And she's like, Scott, we don't even know how to dive yet. And I'm like, well, we'll learn. And we did. And since then, I've become a dive master, you know, and all that other crazy stuff. It's just obsessive, everything. You're just all in. Well, yeah, and there's sugar in the house right now. Oh, you know, okay, yeah. yeah Lots we, of sugar. We've gone through the holidays, chocolate, and there's still a lot of chocolate. Of chocolate exactly, and that can be a problem for me. Anyway, let's not digress. Let's, <laughs> I, I, I'm really looking forward to talking about um, the events of the atonement of Jesus Christ. You know, we've just come through Christmas, the holiday season, and and now I really look forward to uh, in preparation for the next and the most important holiday season for me. That's Easter for all of us. That's Easter, whether we know it or not. And right. and the things that we talk about today, the next it'll probably be the, you know it was last episode. It'll be this episode, and maybe at least two more after that. You know, I anticipate being about four episodes around the events of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And and as we do this now. We're really putting ourselves, and for those of us who have not embarked in in this kind of way or with this kind of depth in understanding and learning the the events of the atonement of Jesus Christ, which are important for us to know, and we'll talk about why that is as we go along here. But as we do this, David, we're really preparing ourselves to have a even a better Easter season than maybe we've ever had before. You just use the word intent. You know, yeah. maybe maybe if we set that intention right now that we're prepared that when that day comes, because that'll be here in just a few months, and when that day comes, that I'm prepared to really have the type of experience spiritually that, that Heavenly Father has intended for me to have yeah. through that. Awesome. Yeah, I'm grateful that we're at that point in the, in our podcast, in our course, to uh, spend this time on the atonement of Jesus Christ, God, and uh, I just want to give a few reminders as we uh, launch further and deeper into this, uh, into these events. Uh, President Nelson has tried really hard to tell us that we should not talk about the atonement as though it were a separate entity. We shouldn't. I, I mean, I don't want to get hung up on this like people did when President Benson gave that amazing talk on pride and. 
it's like you couldn't even use the word pride in your vocabulary anymore. Mm-hmm. You couldn't say I'm proud of my son or I'm proud of my daughter. Uh, and, you know, you, it's like pride and the, the word proud just became a uh, a no no to to ever use ever. And uh, I'm glad we're finally, I think, over that. Yeah, we tend to over rotate sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So, and I so I I say this with not wanting people to become zealot or extreme or obsessive. But but President Nelson has made a really great point, and others have as well, is that there's no power in the atonement, and we shouldn't speak of it as though it's a separate entity. The atonement of Jesus Christ has to be associated with him because all of the power through the atonement is ultimately through Jesus Christ. There's no power in the atonement. The atonement allowed Jesus Christ to administer through the Spirit his mercy, his grace, his redemptive power, his enabling power, his compensatory powers and blessings. It's because of the atonement that Jesus Christ has power but there's no power to give to offer us all those gifts. But there's no power in and of itself in the atonement. It's it's really through Jesus Christ. So we should always associate the atonement with our Savior and Redeemer, and always think of the Father and His sacrifice in the atonement as well. The incredible gifts since we're just coming off Christmas. Uh, the incredible gift of offering his son and to uh, be a father and to witness your son going through that degree of suffering and pain for all your other children is uh, something we ought to also keep in mind when we speak of this. So one more reminder that from Preach My Gospel, we, we read in page two, my favorite quote from Preach My Gospel, as your understanding of the atonement of Jesus Christ grows, you you get that? As your understanding, not just knowledge, understanding, which means mind and heart. And experience. Yeah, thank you. As your understanding of the atonement of Jesus Christ grows, your desire to share, and I, I include, and live the gospel will increase. Honestly, Scott, uh, it's the key to how we uh, how we live. It, it's the key to everything that we do. It gives us uh, the pondering the grandeur of the atonement, Elder Scott, gives us the gratitude, which gives us desire, which uh, the atonement of Jesus Christ will then give us the mercy, the grace, the joy, the peace, everything that we need, the power we need uh, to live the gospel. And again, we still won't be sinless, and we need it every day, and we'll be repenting daily uh, all through Jesus Christ and his atonement. So uh, really, this this should be just the, the center of our thoughts and our lives. And as our understanding increases, so will our ability, our desire first, and our ability to live the gospel will increase. So, well, last time we talked about a sinless life and how uh, what a sacrifice that was. That's uh, such an important part of the sacrifice we call the atonement is that Jesus could not sin and he was tempted 
more than any mortal man can possibly be tempted. And we read all those scriptures that he suffered it over and over again. Temptation, he suffered it. He was attacked directly by Satan. And uh, if he would have given in to those temptations of 40 days in the wilderness, then the, the whole plan would be frustrated. But our father knew that his son would not, and his son wanted to perfectly uh, fulfill the will of the father. So we, we are so blessed that Jesus was willing and able and paid the price to live a sinless life. And um, I think about that a lot, how hard that must have been for him. Any more thoughts on that before we jump into the second part of the events of the atonement? No, I think that uh, we've done, I don't know that you can ever do a completely adequate job covering that part of it. But, you know, in the last uh, episode, our last podcast, we did spend that entire, almost the entire thing talking about the sinless life, how important it was how difficult it was, even though he is God. Deb and I, uh, over the Christmas holiday, we were able to, with our institute class, uh, do a three-part series uh, around Christmas. And one of the things that we really talked about um, the second week, it was called, Oh, Come Let Us Adore Him. That was what we entitled it. But the second week, we talked about the fall of Adam and Eve and how important it is, or the fall of all mankind, I should say, and how important it is that we understand that the fall of Adam and Eve, or of all mankind so that we can really understand the depth of which what we're talking about yeah. here when it comes to the atonement of Jesus Christ. And I think that that's the same when it comes to his sinless life. It's so easy for us, for me, and I think it's probably all, I think, you know, we, we as a culture, maybe as a society, um, look at Jesus Christ and think, well, he lived a perfect life. He lived a sinless life. I, you know, and we, we say perfect life. We, that means something a little different as we come to know. Yeah. But uh, he lived a perfect life or a sinless life. And we think, well, yeah, he was Jesus. Of course he lived a sinless life. And I, and I think that we just, kind of, we just kind of fly by that without really putting the kind of energy and attention that it deserves. It wasn't all that. I mean, it was difficult. That was a big deal. It was a big deal. And, and, it, and it's not something that Jesus just sauntered through life, living a sinless life, because he was Jesus. And that quote by C.S. Lewis is where, you know, nobody knows how great the temptation is when they give into it. Because we gave into it. Yeah, you cut it short when you give into it. We'll never Jesus, know. Jesus never cut it short. No, he followed it through the nth degree. And I know every day he was tempted. And yeah. every day he was tempted with all of the negative emotions and feelings and actions and sins right. that are available to all of us. And uh, I don't think it necessarily made it easier because he was a God. In fact, I think because he was a God, in some ways it made it even more difficult. Because he felt it deeper and other reasons. Because he could suffer it. Yeah. Well, and so I think that it's important that we just emphasize, if we don't feel that to the depth of our soul, the importance of the sinless life, and not just the importance, but the difficulty around it, and what all of that meant. I mean, I have a difficult time living a sinless moment. Yeah, uh, you know, some some hyperbole there, but not a lot. You know, uh, yeah. and, and so that, that's you know that's something that I think that if we just do a flyby on that, which we haven't. But it can be tempting for us to just do a flyby on that. Let's not do that. Let's understand the depth 
and the meaning behind that sinless life as we move into these next parts. So as we, we are talking about the events of the atonement, and, uh, and after we talk about the events in the next two or three podcasts and finish that up, we'll talk about all the effects of the atonement. To really deepen our understanding of the atonement, you have to understand the events and the effects. So there are four events we call the, the atonement. One, his sinless life. And second is Gethsemane. So I think it's interesting, Scott, to kind of review the last 24 hours of Jesus's life and think about this. And uh, our listeners may want to turn to the back of their Bible and look at the map of Jerusalem and kind of go through this themselves and just review the events of the last 24 hours of his life. You know, he starts in the upper room to celebrate Passover with his disciples. That's on a Thursday evening, which is really, for them, Friday morning, which is the day of Paschal lamb sacrifice and Passover. And uh, he he initiates the sacrament and tells him to take some uh, bread and some wine, and which represents his uh, flesh and his blood. He gives them some of his greatest discourses in the upper room. Many of that is recorded by John in John chapter 12, 13, 14, 15. I mean, uh, about a third of John is <laughs> what happens in the upper room, which is amazing, some of his best discourses. Um, he then uh, tells his disciples that uh, that after they sing a hymn, and, and he's identified his betrayer that night in the upper room, Judas, after he's washed their all of their feet, including Judas. I don't know, that just that just really touches me that Jesus washes Judas's feet uh, before Judas leaves to do his, his dirty deed of betrayal. Um, and then they sing a hymn. The last thing they do in the upper room is they sing a hymn. That's kind of on the uh, southeastern part of Jerusalem, the upper room. And after they sing a hymn, then they go to Gethsemane. I remember being uh, near where the upper room is. The upper room, of course, doesn't really exist. I mean, after after the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, there wasn't much left of what is originally in Jesus' day. But we kind of know where it was, and... I remember walking, uh, you know, from uh, the upper room over to Gethsemane and trying to have an experience and try to feel what they were feeling. And and we uh, will read about this in a moment here in the scriptures. But um, I just let me review the 24 hours here. So they go to the Gethsemane, and Jesus suffers and bleeds from every pore in Gethsemane. We'll talk about that in more detail. And uh, then he's uh, betrayed, and he's arrested, and then he's taken to Caiaphas' palace, which is kind of back near, not far from where the upper room was. And then he's taken to Antonio Fortress, which is the uh, Pilate's palace, uh, where the governor stays, which is kind of in the, the northern part of the city within the walls of Jerusalem. And uh, he, he goes through kind of a, a trial there, and he's then sent to Herod, and he goes to Herod, and and keep in mind, this is all after bleeding from every pore that he's doing this. We'll talk about that more in a minute. 
And then he goes back to Antonio Fortress after being with Herod, stripped and placed a, a, a robe, a purple robe on, on him. And he goes back to, Her- to Pilate and Pilate uh, offers Jesus or Barabbas and, and uh, they, the Jews want Jesus crucified. So Barabbas is set free, which is identified as a thief in one of the gospels and a murderer in another. I think Pilate picked the worst the worst criminal in Jerusalem to offer the Jews, and they they chose Barabbas over Jesus. And uh, then he's scourged, cross is placed on his back. Keep in mind this is after bleeding from every pore. And uh, he then uh, collapses under the weight of the cross on his way to Golgotha. Simeon carries it the rest of the way. And by 9 a.m. on Friday morning, he is crucified on the cross. So really 12 hours, the last 12 hours or 14, 15 hours of Jesus's life is from the upper room, walking uh, probably about five miles, they estimate, uh, after going through all that suffering and then nailed on the cross uh, Friday morning. Uh, The Lamb of God so offered on the cross. so that, then, then he's resurrected, of course, three days later, or the third day after. So we'll we'll talk more about the crucifixion and resurrection. That's just a review, Scott, of uh, Jesus's last few hours as a as a mortal. Well, uh, he goes to Gethsemane, and I again, I think I said this in the last podcast. I can't. You did. We can't just talk about this. We have to read it. We have to read the holy. The Holy Word, the Holy Writ, the Scriptures, because I think they're inspired and they're from witnesses, and uh, there's a feeling about them. And I have learned over the many years of of teaching the events of the Atonement of Jesus Christ that you have to read it. You can't just tell it. Uh, there's it gives there's more authority in reading it, and there's uh, more of a feeling, I think, in reading it as described by Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. So the gospel writers who were witnesses of these things. Let's go to Matthew 26, verses 36 through 39 in Matthew. Um, Before I read this, I just opened my scriptures, and I have a little olive leaf here Yeah, from from the the Garden of Gethsemane. We were there just in March. Still have olive trees there. They do. Some of them in a fenced area, almost... They estimate those trees 2,000 years old. Yeah, the other very old. Okay, Uh, Matthew 26, verse 36. Then cometh Jesus with him to the place called Gethsemane. And he said unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. We know that to be James and John. And began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And if we read the, we'll read the Mark account of that, but uh, it's actually his three disciples who become very sorrowful and very heavy. He, uh, the Joseph Smith translation uh, makes that more clear, that the, the three disciples are the ones who are beginning to feel sorrowful and very heavy. But in verse 38, we read how Jesus is feeling. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. So let's pause on 38 for a minute, Scott. What what comes to your mind when you read my soul? This is Jesus speaking to 
his disciples, my soul it was exceedingly, is exceedingly so. sorrowful, even unto death. Yeah. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to say, I'm sorrowful even unto death. I, I mean, we understand, we, we have a, a glimpse of the power or the meaning behind that only because we have a glimpse of his the enormity of his power, the enormity of his grace, and everything, all that he is. And that helps us to understand that, because how can Jesus be sorrowful even unto death? And I think he's surprised by it. Uh, Scott, you know, it's Elder Maxwell said that, like you just said, that uh, Jesus cognitively knew what what was about to happen. I mean, right. I, yeah. I don't know how much of the details he understood, but he cognitively knew what he was there to do. And yet, experientially, when he began to experience it, I think it was, uh, well, it was more than he could have ever cognitively uh, understood before he went there. Sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And then verse 39, let, get the dis- this description. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Fell on his face. That doesn't sound like a serene prayer. It doesn't kneeling, sound. Kneeling, kneeling at a rock nope. with his arms folded or his hands clasped together. Father, if it be thy will. I mean, this this is fell on his face. That that sounds uh, desperate. That sounds uh, painful. That sounds the groanings. I'm sure that were coming from his from his spirit and what he was already beginning to feel bef- even before the suffering really took place. I I just think that's amazing that we we most peach people I think kind of picture him because of. Uh, Anderson and other artists who have pictured him kneeling in the garden. I, my favorite picture of him is when uh, I and I don't know who the painter is, but I have a, a painting of uh, of an angel kneeling down while Jesus is laid out flat on the ground. You know, I I mean it uh, it laid him out. And that, that's even before he bled from every pore. So anyway, uh, that's Matthew's account. Let's go to Mark's account in Mark chapter 14. Again, we're, we're focusing on Gethsemane here. Verse 32 through 36. Verse 32. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And Gethsemane, we should maybe say, means yeah. the press, the oil press. Yeah, can, can we take a minute on that for just a second? Because, you know, the, the, the oil press, Gethsemane, meaning the oil press. And, you know, that's always, to me, meant something. But when we went there this last spring, it became even more, um, uh, the knowing around it became even more poignant. Because, you know, what, what happens in an oil press, and, and I won't get into all the details, but you can look this up, and it's quite amazing. There's three processes to the oil press. We'll see, uh-huh. we'll see that represented here yeah. in this experience in Gethsemane. Yeah. And in each process there's a, 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 of the press, and it's a literal press, what is happening is, is the weight of the, the oil press itself is pressing and crushing the olives and everything in it and, and creating this oil to 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 
come out. Crushing the pits. Everything. Olive and oil oozing. Yeah. And under the weight of just absolute enormous weight, these olives, there's just no defense they have against this weight. Uh, not intended, but there is no defense against this weight. And, and so as we understand, and, and those imageries will come even greater to light as we go through this, if you'll allow those to. Just let those be at work in your yeah, brain because, because, of the, uh, because of the imagery there. So yeah, going this, back to uh, Mark fourteen thirty two, And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith to his dis- disciples, Sit ye here while I pray. And he taketh with him Peter... And James and John, and began to be sore amazed. And let me, let me just have you pause there for a minute, and let me read the JST. Okay. They came to a place which was named Gethsemane, which was a garden, and the disciples, the disciples, began to be sore amazed, uh, and began to be uh, very heavy and to complain in their hearts, wondering if this be the Messiah. So they're, they're having... Doubts. They're having doubts, depression. I mean, I, I think Satan's working on them. Yeah, they're having a human experience through, any, through all they're, of this. They're really struggling with this. Sore amazed, very heavy, and complaining in their hearts, wondering if this be the Messiah. So that's, that gives us more information what they're feeling. Uh, I think they're just really, really depressed. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, said to his disciples, Set ye here while I shall pray. So um, that gives us a little more information in Joseph Smith translation. So let's let's go back. Uh, to 34? 34. And he saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. There it is again, second witness, that Jesus himself... A God is his soul is so exceedingly sorrowful that he feels like death would be welcome to him. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not I will, but what thou wilt. So a little more information. Uh, I mean, he tells us Mark agrees uh, with Matthew, or Matthew agrees with Mark, that, that he fell on the ground. And then he cries out, Abba. And Abba, of course, is a more uh, intimate, uh, familial title for father. It literally means, I guess, daddy. I mean, he just is really crying out, daddy, if it be possible. Uh Anyway, that's that paints quite a picture, I think, that title of his relationship with his dad and cries out, Daddy, if it would be possible. Yeah. Again, not <coughs> cognitively knowing, but not experientially really having any idea how hard it's going to be. Well, let's turn to, uh, to Luke 22. And read uh, Luke 22. The synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record more, more what happened in Gethsemane. John doesn't record much about what happens in Gethsemane. He spent most of his time describing what happened in the upper room. But 
Verses, uh, Luke 22, verses 39 through 44, Scott. And he came out and went as he want to the Mount of Olives. And, and Gethsemane is right at the foot of the Mount of Olives. Right. So when he says Mount of Olives, that's still Gethsemane because Gethsemane is right at the bottom of the, uh, just outside the walls of Jerusalem. Yeah. Actually, uh, before you begin to ascend up on the Mount of Olives. Between uh, the Mount of Olives, uh, and then you cross over the Valley of Death, and then you have that. Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley, right. Um, 39, and it came, and he came out and went as he want unto the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not in temp- into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, move this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat as, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. So, uh, we learn that an angel appears to him to strengthen him in the Luke account. Um, We also learn that, uh, as Luke records it, or as it's recorded in the King James Version of the Bible, that his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. Well, uh, so nowhere in the Scripture, Scott, in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus bled from every pore. That is a unique and precious point of doctrine that we have as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because of the Book of Mormon. In the translation of the Book of Mormon, King Benjamin had angels show him all of what happened through the events of the Atonement of Jesus Christ, and King Benjamin shares that with, with those who are gathered at the temple, and he tells them Jesus is... Uh, Pain was so great that he bled from every pore. Let's read that in Mosiah chapter 3, verse 7, Scott. And lo, he shall suffer temptations and pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue, even more than man can suffer, except it be unto death. For behold, blood cometh from every pore, so great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and abomination of his people. Blood cometh from every pore. That's that's the first place that appears in the scriptures, and uh, the first place Joseph Smith would have learned that or known that. I mean, you you can you can maybe somewhat get the idea reading Luke, but Luke doesn't say anything about every poor. And in fact, uh, most, not all, but most Christians believe that Jesus sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane. They don't even, many of them do not even believe that he bled at all in Gethsemane. I've told this before in our other podcast last year, but I had some time in uh, Minneapolis while I was in Minnesota to to uh, call about 30 different churches. I just went through the Yellow Pages, just went down the Yellow Pages, <laughs> calling uh, the Church of God and Presbyterian and Methodist and you Catholics. Just, and You realize you just dated yourself. Well, I know. People don't know what the Yellow Pages are anymore, <laughs> but the, the old folks will remember the telephone right. book, Yellow Pages. Yeah, that's right. And I just went to churches, and I just started going down the list. And there were several pages, of course, and I, I did about 30. And uh, I would just call it. I would say, 
Hey, I have a theological question. Is the pastor or minister or priest or whoever in and uh, whichever church I was talking to? And then the secretary would say yes if I if I caught them at the right time. So um, they would come on, and I'd say, hey, I'm, I'm reading the Bible. In Luke twenty two forty four. it says that his sweat was, as it were, like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And uh, what does that mean? What's happening there? So I, I just was honestly wanting to know how they, how they saw that or how they interpreted that. And out of all of those, I only had two who said that they believed that he was, that he was sweating blood. All of the others said, we, uh, we're not sure, we don't really know. They were, you know, kind of vague. And some of them said, I remember specifically one say, he was sweating profusely, thinking about the blood that he would shed on the cross. So, you know, I, I think that we are just so blessed, really, to have a little deeper understanding to what really happened. I mean, it's, it is so humbling for us to think about him in Gethsemane being bruised for our iniquities. I mean, really think about what, what it means to bleed from every poor Scott. I mean, yeah. a bruise is that a vessel or usually just a capillary, a really bad bruise is that several capillaries have, have been broken and, uh, and we see a bruise as a result. But, I mean, to bleed from every pore, capillaries, veins, arteries, uh, his circulatory system has completely collapsed under the the constriction of stress, the press. The press. The press and the constriction upon him. And literally, his heart has broken, his circulatory system is broken. He no longer is uh, able to live based upon just, you know, being human. He, this is where his godhood has to kick yeah. in. Human power has no longer been able to sustain him. Now. His godhood kicks in so that he can endure everything that follows from Gethsemane on. And everything from Gethsemane on, Scott. I mean, his, his godhood kicked in so he could do it, but his godhood did not lessen the pain. I love that quote by Elder Callister. Uh, I, maybe I should just read it here. The Savior submitted to the inhumanity of man. His body longed for sleep. He hungered. He felt the pains of sickness. He was in all respects subjected to every mortal failing experienced by the human family. Not once did he raise the shield of godhood in order to soften the blows. Not once did he don the bulletproof vest of divinity. That he also had godly powers did not make his suffering any less excruciating, any less poignant, or any less real. To the contrary, it is for this very reason that his suffering was more, not less, than his mortal counterparts could experience. He took upon him infinite suffering, but chose to defend with only mortal faculties, with but one exception. His godhood was summoned to hold off unconsciousness and death, the twin relief mechanisms of man, that otherwise would overpower a mere mortal when he reached his threshold of pain. 
For the Savior, however, there would be no such relief. His divinity would be called upon, not to immunize him from pain, but to enlarge the receptacle that would hold it. He simply brought a larger cup to hold the bitter drink. So as we go through these events and the suffering, it's important to understand the role of his godhood and the immortality of his uh, life because of his father being Elohim, our heavenly father. That was why he could endure all of this pain without it being uh, lessened, without it being less extreme. He could endure all of it uh, and not die more than man can suffer, as King Benjamin puts it. The only other place where we can read that Jesus bled from every poor is in the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, section 19, Scott. And again, this revelation would have come after Joseph Smith had learned about what King Benjamin saw and taught in Mosiah chapter 3. But I love this account in section 19 because it's the, the voice of the Lord, and it's in first person. So if you'll maybe start in about verse 16, Scott, section 19. For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. Which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father, and I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. Isn't that amazing? That's beautiful. First person, he acknowledges his godhood, and he acknowledges his infinite suffering. Here he is, through his atonement, uh, unleashing the power of grace that will uh, allow me not just to be with him as a joint heir in eternity, but to deal with whatever life's challenges that may come my way here in mortality as well, which is also an important part of my learning experience around his atonement, Dave. And Scott, this is really only where it begins. It's not finished in Gethsemane. Uh, in fact, we'll talk about this in more detail, but but I, I, the suffering on the cross was even worse than Gethsemane. Uh, but this is where it starts, and it's incomprehensible. I, I think it's also important, uh, the Luke account that talks about the angel, to think about uh, God sending an angel to him in the garden to strengthen him. And I often think, uh, well, what what did he say? What would the angel say? Maybe there were no words spoken, but how... What did the angel do or say to help help strengthen him? Elder McConkie believed and stated that the angel would have been Adam, you know, Michael, the great archangel, who would have come to strengthen him. And I, I think if that's true, that, wow, what did Adam say to Jesus as he's suffering there for all of the sins of mankind, which Adam and Eve brought into the world? What could Adam possibly say to help strengthen him, to help him understand, you know, uh, the necessity of what he was doing and help him to endure it. Uh, I, I don't know. I like to reflect upon that. And I think if, if Adam were there, uh, besides all the other things he would say to strengthen him, he maybe said, I, I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm just so sorry you have to do this. But there is no other way. 
just as uh, you know Eve learned in the Garden of Eden, there is no other way. I think I think it, it's kind of beautiful to think about that if it was Adam, because here is Adam and 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 Jesus, who um, Jesus under the direction of Elohim, our heavenly Father, created the worlds. Yeah, this, right. Yeah, uh, and then Adam. So that was right. the first pillar of the plan of salvation, right. or the first creation. pillar of eternity, the creation, and then the second pillar being the fall of mankind or the fall of Adam and Eve. Adam was obviously instrumental and involved in that. The and Savior now, would have definitely been there and appeared to them. That's right. And now here we have the the answer to yeah. the fall. There's, of Adam and Eve, and and of course that's Jesus's, uh, Jesus Christ's job, uh, to to uh, to set that off for us through the through His atonement and the things that we're talking about here. So, I, I, I for me, there's just some sort of beautiful poetry, some sort of beautiful um, divinity, and all of that. If it yeah. were, and I like the friendship yeah. between Jehovah, yeah, and Michael, yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they were they were so close, and so yeah, I think it's it's uh, touching to re- reflect on that experience of the angel and and Jesus. So in Gethsemane, after the angel and after he's bled from every pore, I love how the how in the Bible videos that the church made they they show Jesus going to the Kidron Brook and kind of washing himself off. Um, Maybe uh, some of the blood running into the Kidron Brook and somewhat cleansing himself before he's betrayed and uh, and arrested. I just think that's uh, kind of interesting to consider. You know that he's even though he's bled from every pore, he he has an opportunity to go over there and kind of cleanse some of that uh, with water. And then he's arrested, and uh, for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave in the Old Testament, Judas and the Roman soldiers come, and and Peter cuts off the ear of Malthus, and Jesus uh, restores his ear and kind of chastises Peter. And, and then he goes through a, uh, a mockery of a trial, and... Uh, ends up at the uh, house of Caiaphas where they spit in his face, where he's spit upon, where he's rebuked, and uh, then early in the morning is taken to Antonio Fortress. I just want to say some things about Gethsemane before we close the podcast. Everything after Gethsemane would be intensified, Scott, because of what he experienced in Gethsemane. I mean, I, this is the ultimate meaning of, quote, he was wounded. This is uh, Abinadi quoting Isaiah. This is Isaiah 53 and Mosiah 14. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. I mean, he was, his whole body would have been bruised. His face uh, when they slapped him, it would have been so much more painful than just any slap because his whole face was bruised when they slapped him. Even Judas's kiss, um, such a hypocrisy of Judas kissing him on the cheek would have been painful because he was so bruised 
by the bleeding from every pore. Uh, uh, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Love the description that Isaiah sees of this. In Jesus the Christ, Scott, Elder Talmage, writing Jesus the Christ in the Salt Lake Temple, I'm always, you know, the context of the coming forth of this book is pretty amazing. and One of the few books that still continues to endure. And uh, Anyway, Elder Talmage, this is how he describes it. Christ's agony in the garden is unfathomable by the finite mind, both as to intensity and cause. He struggled and groaned under a burden such as no other being who has lived on the earth might even conceive as possible. Not, not just, not more than man can experience, but more than man can even conceive as possible. It was not physical pain, nor mental anguish alone that caused him to suffer such torture as to produce an extrusion extrusion of blood from every pore. But it was the spiritual agony of soul, such as only God was capable of experiencing. No other man, however great his powers of physical or mental endurance, could have suffered as much. So... I love that. Uh, it wasn't the physical. It was the spiritual more than anything else. The, it was everything. It was physical. It was emotional. It was mental. It was more than anything else spiritual. To take upon himself the sins and the suffering of all mankind, to take upon himself all of the negatives of all mankind as a result of the fall. I believe that in the garden and again on the cross at 12 noon, three hours after he's been on the cross and it turns completely dark, I believe he suffers spiritual death in a mortal body. That's that's got to be the... Well, I mean, we can't conceive it. We can't comprehend it. How how painful that that would be to be especially maybe for him in a way as close to his father as he was as innocent as he was as as pure as he was to take upon himself and to feel the effects of all of the sins all of the evil dirty awful sins of all the world and actually be cut off from the presence of God and be all alone well, at least in the garden, he had an angel. On the cross, there will be no one. And uh, that's why when we talk about the cross on our next podcast, we'll talk about how the really the zenith to his suffering was on the cross from 12 noon until 3 p.m. Ah, it's, it's, it kind of always wears me out uh, talking about this, Scott. I just... It's kind of heart-wrenching. It's, I know I caused some of his pain. I'm grateful that he was willing to suffer for me, as President Faust puts it. You know, President Faust puts, I wonder how many, I wonder how many drops he shed for me. Uh, 
this idea of bleeding from every every pore is in the medical in the medical field they would actually call that uh, hematidrosis. Hema is blood, and tidrosis means that it uh, it comes through the pores. And it's a I'm just reading here from a, a the Mayo Clinic. Hematidrosis, a very rare condition in which a person sweats blood. Under the pressure of great stress, the vessels constrict, then rupture. The blood goes into the sweat glands and comes out of the pores as droplets of blood mixed with sweat. The effects on the body is that of weakness and mild to moderate dehydration from the severe anxiety and both the blood and sweat loss. Another effect is that the skin becomes extremely tender and bruised so that any pressure or damage to the skin is more than ordinarily painful. So again, any touch from anyone as they press up against him as he's as he's trying to carry the beam on his back, any touch to his skin at all after Gethsemane would have been exponentially increased because of what he experienced there from bleeding from every pore. Yeah, even the weight of his own robe. Yeah. Yeah, and think about the the effects of dehydration. I mean, he's completely dehydrated. I don't think I've ever experienced that in my life, but I know my wife does. You know, Chris got gets so dehydrated sometimes that she just, uh, well, uh, in Egypt, I guess she was, I was close to losing her. When we were in Egypt, she became so dehydrated and so nauseous and so sick that, so I, he's feeling all of that as well. Um, anyway, I, there's no way we can adequately describe. We have no words to really communicate. I think uh, the the divinity and holiness and sacred nature yeah. of what happens in Gethsemane, Scott. Uh, but I feel such humility and gratitude for not only what he did, but but for the love in which he did it for me, for you. Hope that our listeners will begin to feel some of that as well. There is no way that any of us can really understand what it was that Jesus went through during those hours um, and, and days or whatever during this process. But, but if we pray and ask Heavenly Father to help us with the spiritual eye and with the spiritual understanding, understand that we're likely to have a great experience with that. We will have a deeper exposure to and a deeper experience as we begin to understand the suffering that took place and how that suffering was affected. There is a cause and effect here. There is a cause on our part. The effect was the suffering and how that cause was uh, due to us. Now, now, that will come by way of solution to us. If we pray for that, as we seek that out, as we ask Heavenly Father to give us that experience, I think he'll give it to us, but he'll give it to us in a way that'll help us see that as a solution. So that, and this is my invitation for this week, so that when we go to the sacrament table on Sunday 
and we hear the words of the sacrament prayer, and we recognize that we are taking these things in similitude of the blood and of the body of, of the Savior of the world. And as we take those things into us, I, I, I hope and pray that we will have the wherewithal to, to approach that experience this coming Sunday and every Sunday hereafter now uh, with that intent of help me to understand, help me to know. And not only help me to know the experience, but help me to know the effects of the experience. Help me to feel those those effects, which we'll be talking about and identifying up in upcoming podcasts. But you don't have to wait for those podcasts to feel those effects. You know, pray that God will allow those effects to be felt by us as we do that each week. And take his name upon us as we remember him. Thanks for being with us, everybody. Uh, we uh, appreciate your participation. As always, again, it's been a while since I've made mention of the email address, but please don't hesitate to send us questions or experiences or thoughts to us at gmail.com. Thanks for being with us. We look forward to being with you next week, and until then, be well. Mm-hmm.